Welcome back to the PeaceWorks podcast, everyone. On this episode, I want to introduce you to a training that I did uh, in 2017 called The Impact of Domestic Violence on Children. It's not my favorite. Uh, it's, it's one that um, I critique myself a little too heavily on, I think, but the content uh, is helpful, and I wanted to share that with you. Now, I also want to give you a warning because this is a very difficult subject, and the content may be uh, triggering for some folks or may tempt you or entice you into some um, uh, thinking or uh, choices that, that are poor. And what I mean by that is um, there are children in peril uh, within this training. We talk about the impact on children, obviously, and introduce some material that may be difficult. So if, if this is a topic that may be too difficult for you to participate in, uh, I would encourage you not to listen today. Uh, how is that for uh, a podcast host? But I want to make sure everybody is safe and uh, and secure. So uh, thank you all for being part of the podcast. I hope this is helpful. Uh, again, the impact of domestic violence on children. Welcome to the PeaceWorks podcast. I'm your host, Chris Moles. I'm a pastor and biblical counselor who helps churches and families confront the evil of domestic violence and promote healthy, God-honoring relationships. The following message is from the 2017 IBCD pre-conference with Chris Moles on the topic of domestic violence. Well, I uh, want to thank you guys. It's been a great, great day thus far. I've enjoyed teaching, and I hope this has been beneficial. I know we've only scratched the surface. But my prayer is that maybe some of you will, um, maybe like me, uh, find your niche in this work and uh, be able to offer some help and some hope to perpetrators and victims along the way. Uh, one, uh, some of you were talking to me at the break. I thought this was a very good point to bring up. Um, because this is such a tricky diagnostic issue in some ways. Um, one of the couples brought up to me that as I was talking, they were thinking about one of their cases and they, were, they said they were seeing apples everywhere, right? If you've got to really stretch to find the fruit on the tree, that's not what we're asking you to do. This stuff, as you get more and more engaged, it should become more and more clear that you're going, oh, that makes sense. Oh, that makes sense as you're putting those patterns together. When I talk about victim care, uh, one of the things that you know we do is we talk some about those landmines, those uh, traps, those issues that we talked about the last session. But I also like to talk about the victims of domestic violence that are kind of less known or maybe forgotten, and that's children. It's estimated, it's believed, and I think uh, sociologically they're beginning to show this, that children who witness domestic violence share many of the symptoms, developmental problems, that children who are the target of violence experience. And uh, I'm gonna try to illustrate that some today as we talk a little bit about uh, the impact of abuse on children. Now, I, uh, I tend to do this when I talk. I didn't today because I know all of you came to hear this topic, so it's not like I was thrust upon you. Um, but this particular talk does carry some weight. If, if you're here and, and you've had about enough and you're a little wore out with the topic, um, or maybe you yourself 
have experienced violence or you did in the home as a child, no one's going to be upset or um, worried if you need to take a break. So we're going to be talking about children and we're going to be placing them kind of in the context of peril. And if that's just something that you're not equipped or positioned to handle right now, that's totally cool. Uh, No one here is going to judge you. Someone might even check on you. And if you need something, somebody might even be willing to pray with you. Isn't it great to be in a place where we can do that? So feel free. If it gets to be too much, no one's going to be worried if you got to take a breather. All right. We've gone through all the definitions, so you guys should be uh, well-versed on those. I do like Luke 17, too. I know contextually it's a little problematic, but hey, um, it's got such a great imagery. I was, um, I was actually in Albania last year doing a conference on uh, domestic violence, and uh, we were taking this tour of this old town, and I saw a millstone there. And I took this picture because there was a little olive tree right beside it. It was a beautiful little picture. And uh, it reminded me of that verse, you know, if you harm one of these, that it'd be better if you had a millstone tied around your neck and thrown into the ocean. I mean, those suckers are huge. I mean, Flava Flav, you guys know, anybody? <laughs> yeah, boy, like that size clock, but only weighing, uh, you know, 200 pounds or 500 pounds or whatever. Crazy. Uh, but that verse comes to mind as I think about this topic. Why is this important? I think in large part, this is important because of uh, how often children are experiencing this. Domestic violence is the most frequently occurring violence that children experience. One out of 15 kids are exposed to domestic violence and 90% of them are eyewitnesses to it. How many clicks does it take? There we go. Uh, Police encounter half a million children during domestic violence arrests in the U.S. every year. Whoops, too far, too far. It's going to start. Okay. And children exposed to domestic violence may experience many of the same symptoms and lasting effects as children who are direct victims of violence. So sociologically, there's some important issues. Now, we'll talk theologically here in a minute. But just the extent to which children are exposed to this problem is drastic and dramatic. And if you're anything like most churches and church people that I know, you probably love kids. And your church, maybe rightfully so, ministers to kids. I heard one of our children's leaders for our denomination recently She said, hey, I want to remind you as we minister to kids that they do not get a smaller version of the Holy Spirit. (laughs) But how wonderful, right? How wonderful that as children come to know the Lord, they have the same spirit living in them as as who's living in us. And um, not only are they children, but they're also uh, brothers and sisters at the same time. And yes, there's responsibility, but there's also something precious about them as the body of Christ. And yet we minister to children on a regular basis, many of which parents maybe not even come to our church that are living in situations that are equivalent to a war zone emotionally and developmentally. To try to illustrate this, and we'll see, I've got a couple videos here, so we'll, we'll see if we can uh, make these work. Sometimes we've got to hit and miss with it. But I want to introduce you to something that I do pretty regularly, and that's I'd like for you to listen to a 911 call. And the reason I chose this call, I did have to edit it. It's the least profane call I have. As you can imagine, situations like this, 911 calls can get pretty aggressive, and this one does not have any curse words unless I put the wrong one in. 
So please forgive me if a wordy dirt pops out. Um, but I'd like for you to listen to this child and then I'll tell you more about the story. This has been going on forever and ever. I believe the little girl in the video, I could be mistaken, I just talked to an advocate recently who knows her. I believe she was six or seven at the time that this recording was taken. Um, Pretty striking, isn't it? I I know, it's shocking. Um, When I introduce material like this, especially to my biblical counseling friends, I do get people who are like, you know, Chris, I'm just not sure. Uh, this is so, such a rough situation. I have one recording. I can't share it with you, unfortunately, because of the profanity, but it's actually been given to me uh, permission to use by a victim that we served. Her husband, who was a local pastor, um, would be abusive and go on a tirade uh, quite often, and her son began to record these. I have a couple hours of recordings, unbeknownst to him, that was eventually signed over to our training team that were so laden with profanity and um, control and coercion that I let some friends of mine, uh, counselors who were struggling with emotional abuse, say, Chris, I don't really get it, I don't get it. I said, can I play you five minutes of recording? And I played five minutes and the first thing that this one lady said, she said, well, of course that's emotional abuse. <laughs> because once you kind of experience and you kind of hear, in a counseling room it can be sterile, can it? But in those moments, it's, it's visceral and it's painful. This was an actual 911 call. This young lady, um, it had been in her mind going on forever and ever. As a little girl, the, her entire life maybe had been uh, privy to this type of violence and aggression. Uh, by the way, uh, it had escalated, had it not? This had been going on forever and ever, but the little girl is frantically worried because he made red marks where? Mommy's neck. Remember we said strangulation is like that's the one step away from killing somebody. This is how far this has escalated. This little girl, I I found out later that she uh, grew up and found herself in an abusive relationship. Not an uncommon thing, by the way. Um, There is a a level of normalcy to this, to folks who grow up in it, which is a danger to children, I would say. Found herself in an abusive relationship, eventually became an advocate. Um, Not a believer to my knowledge, Uh, But a friend of mine who's a believer and an advocate met her. And it turns out that this young lady was at a training, being trained on uh, intervention as an advocate. And this 911 call was used as part of the training and she had no clue. So she's exposed immediately to uh, her own childhood. And it actually said it was a pretty therapeutic thing for her. It was a helpful thing for her in the long run. But um, yeah, and so now she uses her own recording 
to train folks, but this was an actual, actual recording. Some things there that um, are real striking. So there's some so- sociological conditions, let's talk, or considerations. Let's talk about the theological. Why is this important? Well, certainly it's important because sociologically kids are experiencing this kind of violence and we want to be people of compassion and hope. But theologically, there's some things I think we should consider too. Number one is the incarnation. Jesus entered our world as an infant, did he not? He relates to our entire existence. He understands what it means to ask the question, are the children okay? It resounds with the heart of God. Jesus was a kid. We still believe that, right? I, I, I don't know why I'll have to ask him uh, one day when we're face to face, but wouldn't you love to have some information about what childhood Jesus was doing? Uh, would it be fascinating, I would think. I think what we would find is that he was a pretty normal kid. He was very extra uh, extraordinary as well, but I would say there's so many things that we would look and say, well, I did that. I skipped rocks, Right? I played that game. The incarnation is not simply confined to Jesus' experience, adulthood, found himself upon the cross and rose from the dead. The incarnation is that he relates to our entire existence. So that as he's paying the penalty of our sin, he's doing so as a complete person, an entire existence. He identifies with us so fully that we can identify with him. So it's not that children are second-class citizens, I would hope, right? Christ saw fit to, to be part of our world as a child. In a very humble, humble way, as you can see, Philippians 2, 6 through 11 communicates. Uh, number two, theologically, there's some consideration here about children and the kingdom. Children and the kingdom. As you read the New Testament, and in particular the Gospels, in a culture that devalued children, Jesus prioritized them. I love this story. I'm sorry, I'm a softie for the Gospels. I just think Jesus is awesome. And I love this story when the disciples are like, would you stop bothering the man? Get away from me, kid, you bother me, right? Jesus is like, don't turn them away. This is the kingdom of heaven. This is how... We relate to God. Let the kids come to me. Don't hinder them. For the kingdom of heaven belongs to such of these. There's this unique connection between children and the kingdom. Let me ask you, as a believer, have you ever learned something theologically from a kid? Me too. Me too. There's some theological things to consider. One, Jesus came as a baby, and so childhood is important in that regard. And then the kingdom of God is uniquely connected to, to children. They see things. Don't you wish you could still see things that way? <laughs> that you weren't so tainted by things. There's also some theological considerations regarding the church and the vulnerable. The church and the vulnerable. You see, we have a responsibility to care for those in need. And children represent a significant class of what we would call the least of these. A significant class of the least of these. I love James 127. It, it, it was an interesting verse to me until, um, until we went on our adoption journey. My, my family 
adopted one of our children. We have one of each. One came by one means, one came by the other. And um, as we were starting our journey of adoption, this verse was one of those things that I kept clinging to, that religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress, to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. The church has a responsibility to the vulnerable, right? And kids who are experiencing domestic violence are being exposed to really, to use Jason's words, a demonic distortion of the way family is supposed to be. They're not getting a clear picture of what's supposed to happen. And many of these children belong to or are part of a family that claims to be believers. Or a father, for instance, who is a leader in the church. You know, we also have a biblical responsibility to children, uh, both fathers and church leaders. Uh, there should be some scriptures in your notes that apply to this. I've quoted 1 Timothy 5.8 already. If anyone does not provide for his own, especially those in his household, he's denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. I am amazed from the court side of things, how many men that I work with that try to use child support or the lack thereof as a means of controlling their spouse. And at the same time, claiming to be a believer. Well, I know, the courts are not fair. I shouldn't be paying this. Whatever the excuse is, dude, that's set aside for your kids. Take your responsibility. I mean, even unbelievers do that, according to the passage. But it is so disheartening to see husbands and fathers who are so driven by control that they will intentionally, in order to intentionally harm their spouse, they will directly or indirectly harm their kids or use their kids as a weapon even to send messages or to create doubt. I once worked with a guy who, this is much more um, seemingly innocent, but it was an interesting uh, conversation that he and I had after he disclosed this to me. He uh, would have his kids on certain weekends. His partner, his wife would have them on certain weekends. They were in a separation while the courts were figuring some things out. Their churches were involved. Their church was involved. It was, you know, like you expect, it was a big mess. Different people were trying to get different moving parts to the puzzle. And he had the kids over one day and one of his kids said to him, dad, when, when will this be over? And the dad said, well, you need to ask your mother because she's the one causing all this. Now, he might have believed that, but it's, the intent behind it was to, I want mom to hear this, right? That's not a child's responsibility, is it? Kids are not marriage counselors or mediators. They're kids. Yeah, we expose them to, to quite a bit. All right, let's talk about some direct risk because I, I want to give you another vignette here in a moment, and then we're going to do some interaction. Yay! Because I'm hit the wall and I need y'all to talk a little bit. <laughs> Here's some direct risks to kids. Their emotional well-being. I think we could agree that growing up in a house that's tumultuous, whether it's a toxic couple relationship or more severe, a domestic abuse situation, it can hinder a child's development, their sense of safety, and their general happiness. Agreed? All right. You know that domestic violence is being shown to affect their social development. 
This makes sense when you start to think about the social connections that children are going to be asked to make as they grow older, like connections about family relationships, intimate relationships and peer relationships. Uh, I don't have permission to show you, uh, but I'd use a, a video with our men's group and it's called Let's Play House. And it's to a brother and a sister. And the little boy says, hey, let's play house. And then it's black and white and it shows she's trying to cook at the play stove and he's got bills and he's throwing them on the ground and he knocks the food off the table and he beats his fist on the table. And it's to demonstrate the fact that, that there are instances in which children are mimicking the behaviors shown to them by their parents. And the idea here is that this is what we're modeling as normative. Uh, it can affect a child's social development. You can probably see then that it can affect an individual's intimate relationships in the future, can it not? So let's say my only experience, now granted, please don't hear me say this is causative. There's hope for everybody. There are plenty of people, I think identical twins are my favorite studies on this, right? You can have one twin who's like a complete addict and the other twin who's like a teetotaler. Same genetics, same environment, but they make different choices. Um, th so there are children who are exposed to abuse that do not fall back into the pattern. But you do see the risk of how this behavior becoming normative can affect intimate relationships in the future. A young lady who witnesses her mother being abused, finding herself in a controlling relationship. As a young man who shows her attention that her father doesn't show her and takes care of her and comforts her when things are not going well at home, but also wants to know where she's at and where she's going to be. And she has to text back within a few minutes. Are you following? And even how we relate to each other, how children play, etc. It can affect how children behave at home and school. They might mimic the abusive behavior or they might be excessively compliant. And this is the weird thing about this world. They, they tend to see that young boys tend to, not always, remember contributive, not causative, young boys tend to lash out as they experience and witness abuse, young girls tend to comply to the point of, I get straight A's, everything's clean. They're presenting problems in counseling, maybe things such as cutting, self-image. Do you see the connection? Usually those things that we counsel young women for um, based in a heart of control may, not always, but may come out of a family situation that's completely out of control. Are you, are you tracking with me? So there could be control issues, OCD, um, obsessive things. And as we dig and pull the rope, we might find that they've experienced either as a target of abuse or maybe they've witnessed abuse. Again, not causative, but certainly something we want to know as we're pulling the rope and gathering data. It will also, and I cannot stress this enough, I see this in the men that I work with, it will also, may also contribute to beliefs about violence including beliefs about entitlement or normalcy. With young men in particular, are you guys, maybe you guys, let me, let me present this and you tell me as counselors, those of you who are counseling, if you're finding this. I'm, I'm a Gen Xer, all right? Uh, you probably haven't heard of us in a while because there's this new group of kids and they're the same size as the boomers. I hate to break it to you, boomers, but I think you and the millennials are basically the same group of people. You're just separated <laughs> by... And like the four other Gen Xers said, amen. 
you probably haven't heard of us in a while, but I have found that as I'm working with young men, men who are, men who are coming up behind me, maybe they're in their 20s or even early 30s, a real uh, misunderstanding of what it means to, be a, to have respect. Have you guys seen this? It's like the word got redefined somewhere that at one point in time, respect was about the way I carried myself. Right? I show people respect, I be respectful. But it somewhere along the line transition to respect is something that I not only earn, but I take. And that if you contradict me or you confront me, you're disrespect. I'd pop in my jersey here. You're disrespecting me. I literally had a young man say that to me when I was challenging him. He said, why are you disrespecting me? I said, I don't know I was. I didn't know I was disrespecting you. In what ways was I not showing you respect? It was, it was a judgment. I was being judgmental by asking questions. So it's interesting with young men that I work with, no one has in many ways kind of shaped young men uh, in the same way that we might have shaped or seen them shaped in the past. So beliefs about entitlement, for instance, are completely different than, say, beliefs that my parents would have instilled in me. Is this making sense? So as I'm interacting with young men, it's interesting. I've got to do a lot more defining terms, asking more questions, because many of the men that I work with are far more entitled than, say, I was permitted to be. Now, they're entitled about different things. Don't get me wrong. Every generation's entitled, but they're entitled to different things. And I found that young men are far more likely in our generation to be entitled to acts of violence. Because if I'm not getting my way, then I must be violent to get it. I hope that's making some sense. And we learn this in part from our home or from trial and error. I say that domestic violence is a learned behavior. It is a learned behavior. We either learn it because someone modeled it for us or we learned it through trial and error because it does work. If you're selfish and you want to get what you want, it will work for a while, (laughs) right? So we tend to learn it. We want to see as we're interviewing, interacting with young men and even young women, their beliefs about violence. Let me give you an example from the world of of victim care. Uh, Had a friend, was working with a young lady who was a victim and uh, in the course of the interview, she said, well, it's not like he punched me in the face. Well, honey, what, what did he do? Right? She had minimized the violence to the point that, well, as long as I'm not being punched in the face... It's not violence. You'll see this with sexual assault victims too, right? Well, it wasn't like I was raped, and that's the victim-blaming culture, because I was drunk, right? Or because we had had sex before, which was a mistake or what have you, right? And all these justifications that are just not true, right? Because rape isn't about sex. It's about violence and control, same as domestic violence. So getting to the heart of these things, you'll probably need to really communicate some things about beliefs. And a lot of these are built in us as children and they, they come off as normal. Um, there's some issues about physical health and well-being. So a child may be hurt directly due to abuse. So as you deal with child abuse, uh, this, you might actually see this. Um, there is a connection. Men who abuse their uh, children are more likely to abuse their spouse and vice versa. It doesn't, it's all, not always co-occurring. There are some men who treat their children very well, but they do control their spouse. But you should be aware of that. And then also know, as counselors and church workers and pastors, you're mandated reporters when it comes to children's violence against children. 
they can be affected due to direct abuse or ongoing stress and anxiety uh, that can threaten physical health. So I, I wanna, we're going to talk about that here in a minute. Hopefully you'll be able to, to see that a little more closely. Let's talk about how kids are exposed to it. They're exposed to violence the same way we're exposed to anything. But I just think it's fascinating to try to look through a kid's eyes. Because really what domestic violence is doing is it's asking a kid to process really foreign information, isn't it? Asking a kid to kind of process the world with no experience. That's one of the things I, you know, and my apologies to the culture, but I, I, I do think the culture is really struggling here when it comes to teenagers making identity decisions. It's a side note. But when I was a teenager, I was dumb. Anybody else? I didn't know who I was for a long time. And, you know, I want my kids to be happy and healthy, but I don't want them making major decisions. <laughs> but it is odd in our culture how many kids make major decisions. Some of them necessitated by us. Who am I going to live with? Where am I going to spend the holidays? All the way up to the gender identity issues that we're struggling with as a culture. Issues and decisions that kids, should they, do they need to be making those decisions? Side note, back to reality. Okay. Here's some ways children may be drawn into the events by what they hear. Just like us, children process information uh, based on what they hear. The difference is children are not necessarily equipped or prepared to translate, understand, or add value to what they're hearing. So they can hear shouting, name calling, screaming, calls for help, threats, sirens, other sounds associated with uh, the trauma they're experiencing, like thunderstorms or dog barking, or TV shows. You guys know what this is like, right? You're driving down the road and this song comes on from your childhood. Come on, right? And you know every word to that song. And not only that, your mind races back, doesn't it? To an event. It's like clear as a bell. Like you haven't thought about that event in forever, right? And then Huey Lewis comes on, dating myself, and you're like, whoa, there I am. Ooh, what was I doing? What was I wearing, right? Well, negative, negative or traumatic or poor experiences can have the same effect, can they not? By what we hear, and it's almost like we're burning some grooves in our brain. Our children can be affected by what they see. They can see their parent or caregiver being harmed physically or sexually. Remember I said 90% of the police associated responses, 90% of those one in 15 are eyewitnesses. They can see injuries, uh, broken or destroyed furniture or other belongings like the aftermath of a violent episode. They can see crying, looks of fear, looks of intimidation and helpers. And this is a, a sad reality. People help, helpers can be associated with negativity Police, medical professionals, neighbors. It's almost, if you come home from school and the neighbor's there, ah, what happened? Who's hurt? 